This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and welcome to Death by Southwest. Um, guys, it's been, well, it's been a month, let's be honest, but it has been a day, and it's been a It's been a few days here. Um, This, I recorded this on Monday, Monday, or Tuesday, Monday, anyways, and couldn't get it uploaded because of the storms. My internet was pretty in and out. Um, And then when I went to upload it today, Wednesday, late, the file kept telling me it's corrupt. (laughs) <laughs> don't know why, couldn't figure it out, and so here we are, Wednesday at 2.30 in the afternoon, and I'm re-recording this after um, after having dealt with Indiana all morning because she got spayed today, and I am a little heated because I was not supposed to be dealing with this dog and her being spayed and the aftermath of that on my own. And here I am. But I did promise everyone that I would not uh, moan and groan about my breakup and how I'm feeling and my emotions on this episode. So I really want to because I'm I'm fired up right now. I'm kind of angry. <laughs> Uh, and so I really want to talk about that and how I've been feeling because my, everything has kind of shifted in the past two days, maybe not entirely, but a little bit, but I will save that for maybe after I record this, maybe I'll record another one and put that out for anyone who wants to join me in feeling angry. (laughs) Yes, that's where I'm at. Indiana has staples all up and down her belly. She's having trouble maneuvering around the house because she has a giant cone on her head. Um, And if any of the staples rip out, she has to immediately go back to the vet and be put under to have them re-staple her up. So I'm really trying to avoid that, which means every five minutes (laughs) I'm picking her up on the couch, off the couch, outside, inside. It is okay. I can handle it. I am frustrated (laughs) that I'm handling it alone. Uh, but it is what it is. So, oh boy, maybe I should have let myself cool down before I started recording this. Um, but there's no time to waste because this episode is already very late. So I'm going to jump in to the episode. And if you recall from the sense of place episode, we are going to be talking about the glamorous world of Candy Mosler, a high society Houston socialite whose life took a dark turn when she became entangled in a forbidden romance. 
in this episode, we will unravel the layers of intrigue surrounding her luxurious lifestyle, the steamy affair that captivated Houston's elite, and the shocking night that would forever change her fate. So this takes place in the 60s, and I guess it's a li- I'm a little bit cheating in, in calling this a Southwest murder, um, and I won't say too much before I actually start the story, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to actually take that back. <laughs> I'm going to say nothing about that and just jump right in here. We're going to learn about the three kind of main players in this story of ours today, and that's Candy Mossler, Jacques Mossler, and Melvin Lane Powers. So let's start by learning about Candy. So Candy was born Candace Grace Weatherby on February 18, 1920 in Buchanan, Georgia, which is about 55 miles west of Atlanta. Her family was really poor. Uh, they had no, no telephone, no radio. Um, the kids basically stayed busy with doing chores. Uh, they lived on a farm and Candy's father was a farmer. So the kids were constantly helping out by planting crops, picking cotton, and collecting eggs from the chicken coops, things like that. Um, A little tidbit that I found about Candy when she was a little girl that I absolutely loved was that she didn't let her family's kind of financial situation damper her dreams of living a life of luxury. She kind of had like diamonds in her eyes from a very young age even. Um, it was said that she wore her her kind of fancy nightgowns everywhere, even to church. And whenever anyone asked her why she was wearing a nightgown, she'd say that she liked pretending she was a princess, um, which is very fitting once we get to her as an adult. Uh, her mom was basically... <laughs> hate to say it, her mom was basically a baby-making machine. Um, Candy was the sixth of 12 children. And when Candy was um, a little bit older, her mom actually died trying to give birth to the 13th child who also did not make it. And Candy's father died when she was about 10 years old. So at that point, she went to live with her grandparents and from a young age, her grandfather was very encouraging that she should find a man who was wealthy and marry him so that she would never have to live in poverty again. So she was kind of conditioned from a pretty young age to to seek out this, this kind of wealthy, um, luxurious lifestyle and to seek it out in men. Uh, in her late teens, she was introduced to a family friend named Norman Johnson. He was a civil engineer and 10 years her senior. I believe she was 18 or 19. Uh, they were quickly married and she moved with him to Alabama and they had their first child in 1940, Norman Jr. And Candy, her role basically at that point was to be a housewife, to take care of Norman Jr. and the house and and be there when Norman Sr. got home. Um, and she hated it. She was like, this is boring. So 
she wanted to find other things to occupy her time rather than just cleaning and taking care of the baby. So she started volunteering for military support group, military support groups um, that aided the troops during World, World War II. And that kind of um, transitioned into and led her into um, you know, meeting other women who were doing the same thing and then getting together with them and hosting parties for all the soldiers at Fort Benning, Georgia. And at one of these parties, she met a very handsome soldier by the name of Winthrop Rockefeller. And yes, he is from the Rockefellers. He's actually the future governor of Arkansas. Uh, they got pretty close and enjoyed spending a lot of time together People were a little bit suspicious about that, how much time they were spending together, but there was never any kind of concrete proof or evidence that anything nefarious was going on beyond just a friendship. Um, but it was, it was, a lot of people believed that they had had an affair before he ended up shipping off to war. Um, and right around the time that he shipped off to war, she found out she was pregnant and eventually had a daughter named Rita, in 1943 is when this was happening. Um, and she gave Rita a middle name of Rockefeller. So I, to me, that's like if there was any question about an affair or maybe that was his child, um, the middle name really, I feel like that really locks in that there was an affair. Um, but Norman apparently allegedly had no idea about the affair and had no idea why Rockefeller was the middle name, but he was fine with it because, you know, the last thing he suspected was that his wife was sleeping and getting pregnant by um, one of the Rockefellers. Not too long after that, uh, Norman got a job transfer and moved the entire family to New Orleans. And unfortunately, not long after that move, their marriage kind of fell apart and they quickly divorced. Now, after they divorced, Candy was a single mom, and she started trying to figure out what she was going to do to earn an income and support herself and her kids beyond the alimony or child support that she was getting. Uh, and she decided she wanted to be a model, which was not that um, much of a stretch. She was very attractive. People told her all the time how beautiful she was. So... She called her sister and said, can I leave my kids with you? I got to go to New York and take care of some things. She headed to New York City and she had big dreams that she was going to have this amazing modeling career. She even attended classes at the Barbizon School of Modeling. And I am aging myself when I say this, but I feel like I remember Barbizon ads in magazines from when I was a teenager. Um, they were pretty cheesy. Uh, so she, she did book some jobs. She had a few print jobs, uh, but nothing major kind of ever accumulated from this, uh, attempt at being a model in New York. So she headed back to New Orleans. And once she was back in New Orleans, she decided, you know what? I don't need to be a model. I can teach other people how to be a model. So she opened up her own modeling slash kind of a finishing school. It was called the Candace Modeling and Self-Improvement School. Although I read that the name did change multiple times. That's to me, that's the Candace Modeling and Self-Improvement School. Not a great name. Um, 
she she really went went for it though with this with this modeling finishing school she put uh bought advertisements in in various magazines um the ads explained that she would offer guidance to young women on how to do their makeup hair and tips for maintaining a quote streamlined figure uh she was also offering to provide coaching for modeling and fashion shows and her kind of selling point was that she would help instill qualities of quote, self-confidence, grace, poise, and elegance of speech to cultivate, um, a, a true like model like being in all senses of the word. Um, and in all of these advertisements that she put in various magazines and newspapers, uh, they all featured a picture of her modeling, uh, and, and it actually worked. I mean, she was pretty successful. She had a lot of women come to her and sign up. Um, and it was, it was, she felt very proud. Um, she, you know, she had come from this farm in Georgia, basically poverty stricken and kind of reinvented herself as this entrepreneur in the big city of New Orleans at the time. And not only was this modeling school kind of candies. Uh, way of staying independent and supporting herself, but it was also kind of her ticket into the world of high society, which is really where she always wanted to be. You know, with her, uh, with Norman, she was, they were well off, they were comfortable. Um, And even now on her own, she's doing okay, but she really had Uh, If you remember, I said, like, I think I said diamonds in her eyes. She wanted to be part of the, like, wealthy upper class people, socialites. Um, And this, this modeling school kind of helped her. Another thing that she started doing that kind of helped put her on that path towards the life of a socialite was getting involved with fundraising for the New Orleans Opera. Um, This put her in contact with and kind of rubbing elbows with and around a lot of very wealthy, um, for some reason I say like upper echelon type people. I could be using that incorrectly. Uh, But, and that's where she wanted to be. That's where she saw herself always ending up within that like 1%. Uh, and, and so the, the fundraising that she was doing for the opera certainly uh, played a big role in that. And it, it actually played the biggest role because at one of these fundraising events that she helped to organize for the opera, she met a rich banker named Jacques Mossler. He was 20 years her senior and he was pretty much instantly enamored with her, her blonde hair and elegance. And, you know, she had this Southern charm, this kind of drawl to her voice, like very, uh, well, I'm not going to attempt to do it because I'll do it badly, even though I lived in Georgia for many years. Um, but you know, that, that Southern accent, that's just kind of like honey, or they say like molasses. It's so smooth. Um, and, and so that, her, her Southern charm, her elegance, and her beauty um, really captivated Jacques 
uh, and he, he fell hard for her pretty quickly. And they were married six months later in May of 1949 at a Presbyterian church while on a trip to Fort Lauderdale. Jacques also had four kids. He, he had been previously married um, and had four kids with his previous wife uh, and then had decided, I don't want any more kids and had had a vasectomy after that fourth kid. So uh, newly married, Jacques decided to, he wanted to go to Houston to expand his banking business. So he took candy and her kids, and they moved to Houston. And Houston in the 1950s was kind of swimming in wealthy people. There was a lot of wealth there. Um, George Furman was a newspaper columnist who was uh, working on a book called Houston, Land of the Big Rich. And he described the city um, as using dollars like Niagara Falls uses water. There was a lot of um, big oil there, so a lot of oil men um, that was uh, contributed to the high population of very wealthy people there. I read about this this guy called Jim Silver Dollar West, who was an an oil uh, he owned oil rigs, and uh, he was very flamboyant. He used to drive around in a Cadillac and toss silver dollars out of his window. <laughs> Um, and then another story these are all little just tidbits that I read about how, how wealthy Houston was and, and what kind of a quirky city it was and also a very rich city. Um, and these just fascinated me. Um, I guess another local entrepreneur at the time, he decided to take an unusual approach to motivate his daughter to lose weight. Uh, he promised her $5,000 for every pound that she lost. Now, $5,000 in the 50s is about $57,000 today. So, I mean, can you imagine? She lost 10 pounds. She just made 50 grand in 1950. I need somebody to do that for me. I would be in the best shape of my life. Uh, (laughs) um, So... Jacques himself was also very, very wealthy. Uh, His entire estate, uh, once he kind of got his banking business off the ground in Houston, he obviously uh, also had business, banking businesses elsewhere, other places in the South and the Southeast. Um, But once he, you know, kind of got his, got established in Houston, they estimated his his entire estate to be worth $33 million. So with this huge amount of wealth, him and Candy uh, fit right in in Houston. And Jacques uh, built Candy a house when they moved there, a three-story red brick mansion in the Posh River Oaks area, which has kind of been described as like the Bel Air of Houston. Uh, It had 28 rooms and came with a team of maids, cooks, butlers, gardeners, handymen, and even a chauffeur. Uh, They had a seven-car garage, which had uh, an impressive collection of luxury automobiles. Candy had her own personal maid that just tended to her her needs, her cleaning needs, I guess. Um, 
and this this one article it was very detailed said that her her personal maid was an Egyptian woman that was fluent in three languages. Um, so as Candy, Jacques, and their kids settled into the Houston elite lifestyle, uh, Candy's name kind of became synonymous with wealth, sophistication, and and all the glittering social circles that existed in Houston. Her from the from the outside, people thought that her life seemed kind of like a never-ending gala. Um, lavish parties, elegant soirees, designer clothes, luxury cars, the best jewels and jewelry that money could buy, and and just kind of this overall decadence that most people only dream of. She became very quickly a fixture in the city's socialite landscape. Um, she hosted lots of parties at their 28-room mansion, and she was known for making a real entrance at these parties, whether it was at her house or somebody else's, you know, it didn't matter where the event was, Candy was making an entrance. She would, um, at her house, she would always kind of wait till the party got started and then descend the spiral staircase uh, with high heels and diamonds and designer dresses. Uh, she always liked to wear designer dresses that hit her right above the knee. That was kind of her her look. Um, and she always said, this was funny to me, uh, as she mingled with guests, she would often express gratitude with a warm, bless your heart for coming, um, which I think we've talked about this in another episode that bless your heart, you know, it sounds nice. Uh, it sounds like a thank you kind of. But when I was living in Atlanta, I came to understand very quickly that is not how it is used in the South. Um, bless your heart is kind of like oh, that idiot, poor soul, like poor, poor, stupid person. I don't believe that's how Candy was using it. But uh, in Georgia, like if somebody says, oh, bless your heart, it's kind of like, screw you. <laughs> um, so, the, so, Candy's living this very lavish lifestyle um, with Jacques and thanks to Jacques, her husband. So let's talk about Jacques a little bit. Jacques was from Romania. Um, and when he was a child, he moved with his family to Buffalo, New York. And l later in life as an adult, made his way to New Orleans. And he first started out in the world of used car sales. And... Um, he was known for, he kind of got, got a reputation for being somebody who was very clever, very smart, and would often take shortcuts to make a quick dollar. Um, but those shortcuts always seemed to pan out. Uh, in 1916, a, a newspaper covered a story about the then 21-year-old Jacques. Um, he got arrested for grand larceny. Uh, the incident involved a doctor's car being stolen from a hospital and discovered later in a garage connected to Jacques' dealership. Unfortunately, it wasn't possible. I couldn't find any records confirming whether he got convicted or served any time or anything like that. Just a little interesting tidbit. Don't miss what happens next in today's episode. We'll be right back after a short message from our sponsors. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. 
Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And when he he served in the army and while he was gone, his brothers managed the business Um when he got back from serving in the army, he made a pretty significant change in his life. He sold his car dealership and decided to get into the establishment of small loan companies, uh, a business that was aimed to provide individuals with, you know, people who have like bad credit, um, gives them the chance to buy cars, appliances, furnitures, but with very high interest rates. Uh, he also got into selling home mortgages and invested in several insurance firms and banks. So by the time that Candy walked into his life in you know 1947-ish, um, Jacques, who was 52, had a lot of money, um, a lot of money. And together, these two were a, a really fascinating pair. Uh, Jacques was a, a real pivotal role, obviously, in Candy's life because even though with her previous husband she was no longer in poverty, she still never made it to kind of the elite high society circles that she'd always dreamed of until Jacques. Um, Jacques was not only a successful businessman, he was also pretty charismatic Um he had a pretty distinguished appearance, slicked back silver hair, a little bit of a, a belly, but an attractive man and a very, very well-respected man. So together, they they looked like this picture-perfect, affluent power couple. You know, Jacques with his financial prowess and his charm and Candy with her kind of social graces and elegance. Um, but their their picture perfect life and status in Houston wasn't without several imperfections. Uh, as Candy and Jacques' social status rose, uh, you know, naturally rumors also swirled. So I kind of equate that to they they were like kind of small time celebrities within Houston, and any time that somebody is beautiful and rich and seems to have it all and have this. Pic- picture perfect life, we all know that generally they're going to be the, um, uh, you know, haters, I guess. People who are, you know, looking for something to be wrong or go wrong or something like that. <clears throat> um, so there were, there were a lot of rumors about 
Candy having kind of a, a hidden life in New Orleans. And it was impossible to find out, even to this day, if this was 100% true or not. But the rumors went something like this, uh, she, that she had occasionally worked as an escort in New Orleans and that she actually ran kind of an entire outfit of sex workers. Um, young soldiers back from the war would come to her house and sign up for dance classes, and each was paired with a female partner. They'd dance for a while and then retire to one of the bedrooms um, where the, you know, the soldier would have a continued dance lesson, but in private in the bedroom. Uh, again, just rumors, no idea if they were true or not, but of course these were going to fly. These rumors are going to fly like crazy when Candy was kind of reaching the height of her popularity and um, showing off this perfect life. Joanne Herring, a prominent figure in the city's social sh- social scene, um, caught wind of these rumors at a dinner uh, organized by Candy to benefit the Houston Opera. Uh, Joanne's friend apparently pulls her aside and said, have you heard that Candy was a call girl in the French Quarter? Um, and Joanne says that she responded by saying, oh my God, I always felt there was something unique about that woman, which is actually a kind of a nice response. <laughs> I mean, I would, I would take that as a compliment if somebody said that about me, like, that they felt there was something unique about me. Wow, that's nice. I don't think she meant it in a nice way, but that's how I would take it. Um, But, you know, even if these rumors were true, Candy was not the first woman in Houston with a, you know, shall we say colorful past who also happened to marry an older, affluent man. Um, And... And beyond that, nobody in Houston was going to condemn Candy for these rumors because she was so philanthropic. She, her life really became um, throwing fundraisers and galas and raising money for different charities and organizations. Um, she volunteered in numerous hospitals. Uh, she was committed to the Houston Boys Club and donated lots of money to build bathrooms and bathhouses at the youth center. Um, they, they were no, very well known for, for giving a ton of money to various charities throughout Houston. And kind of the, this blew me away, one of the most philanthropic things um, happened in January 1957 when Jacques was on a business trip to Chicago. And he called Candy and he said, I, this, the most awful thing happened here. I just learned about um, this this wife that was murdered by her husband, and and they had five kids. The youngest kid was mar- was murdered as well, but the other four are still alive, and they're just now they're just orphans. Um, and uh, apparently, Jacques said, "I think we should adopt them." And Candy, without hesitation. Flew to Chicago. They signed custody papers for our, for all four children: Martha, Daniel, Christopher, and Edward. Um, and and they they adopted them. 
they were known after this, you know, now they have a, a real house full of kids. So these four adopted kids and Candy had two children from, well, one from Norman for sure. And then the second one, Rita, was perhaps a Rockefeller. We don't know. Uh, but they were, once they had this kind of brood, this huge family, six kids, they were known for being just extremely fun parents. They had this giant ballroom at, at their mansion, which they transformed into a huge playroom for the kids. Um, the kids had full access to the chauffeur who would take them bowling, take them to the family's ranch house, or they also had a beach house in Galveston, Texas. Um, then Candy and Jacques, because they wanted their kids to play sports and be good at sports, they arranged they to buy the lot across from their house and turn it into a full-size baseball field. Uh, Candy even one time brought a chimpanzee named Jocko to the mansion to play with the kids. And she was quoted as saying, they're my life, my entire world. People can work hard and accomplish a lot of things, but it's useless without children to love. Which is a lovely sentiment and one that I also do not agree with. (laughs) because I don't have kids, uh, but lovely. Needless to say, the kids were Candy's whole life. It, it, her whole life was, were her kids and her philanthropic kind of charitable acts and maintaining her status and appearance in the you know high society of Houston. But as time went on, small little cracks began to kind of mar this flawless image um, that the Mosslers showed the public, you know. Uh, It became more and more apparent that Jacques was not that thrilled about all of these social events and social gatherings, and and he started to not be there a lot more. Um, He wanted to be more anonymous, And so a lot of times when these big galas or soirees were happening, he would head to Miami where he had a condo in Southern Florida. And then he also had three banks there that were his. Um, So it was a way for him to say like, I'm, you know, I'm working, I can't attend. And really he just didn't want to attend. But these, these little nuances or tensions uh, in Jacques and Candy's relationship remained largely behind closed doors. Um, they rarely ever presented anything to the public out, you know, beyond a united front. That is until something happened that would lead to a, a real shocking turn of events for Candy, Jacques, and, and the entire Mossler family. Um, and the impetus for this kind of turn of events came in the form of a phone call from Candy's sister. In 1961, Candy's sister called Candy and said, I'm having a lot of trouble with my teenage son, Melvin. His full name was Melvin Lane Powers. And said, I I can't deal with him anymore. He just keeps getting into trouble. Can you please take him in and try and like shape him up? And Candy and Jacques, being the kind of magnanimous people that they were, agreed. They were going to take Melvin in to their home. They certainly had the money in the room for it. Um, 
So let's talk about Melvin now. Melvin Lane Powers. Melvin was born in 1942 in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, he he had a he had a troubled youth. He was kicked out of school for missing too many days. Um, he started selling magazine subscriptions door to door. He did serve in the Navy and worked a number of odd jobs. Uh, and then he was convicted of a con job in Pontiac, Michigan. Um, he was on a business trip to Michigan and convinced an 89-year-old man to invest $20,000 in worthless stock from a phony magazine subscription company. So he was sentenced to serve 90 days in jail. And at, this was kind of the final straw for his his mom, this jail time. And that's when she shipped him off to Houston. Um, he was still on probation, but I don't know where he served jail time. So I don't know how that worked. I was going to say, so I wonder how he was able to leave wherever he was. I don't have that information. I shouldn't ask myself questions. I don't have the answer to. <laughs> um, so Melvin was six feet, four inches. He was a towering guy. He had like a linebacker build, high cheekbones, dark eyes, black hair. He was, he was kind of movie star handsome. Um, and so Candy, when he moved in with them, Jacques gave him uh, a job and Candy wanted to introduce him to the kind of social scene of Houston because he was so good looking uh, and just because he had had a, you know, trouble finding his way or his path as a as a teen, didn't mean that he couldn't be part of this kind of high society life that Candy was part of. Uh, and things were working out well. It was good. He was living with them. He liked their kids. He was doing work for Jacques. He was attending parties and galas with Candy. And that was okay with Jacques because he didn't want to. Um, he Candy gave him, obviously, his own bedroom. They gave him a Thunderbird to uh, drive. And this was fascinating to me. He At, at one point, he had uh, tonsillitis. And so he had to go in and have his tonsils removed. And while he was in there and under um, anesthesia, Candy spoke to the doctor and asked them to not only adjust his ears, because apparently his ears were um, pretty prominent and stood out a bit. He also had some, some kind of pock marks from acne on his face, but he was still very, very good looking. Uh, but Candy asked the doctor to cosmetically adjust his ears so they lay flatter against his head, to sand his face so the pock marks weren't so prominent, and to circumcise him, all without him knowing. And I have no idea how she got away with that, how that worked. I don't know if she, if she had at some point become his legal guardian. I still feel like he was an adult. You can't, that doesn't happen. I Maybe it happens for people with $33 million. I don't know. Uh, but that is... That's the perfect example of, of first of all, her vanity and just how much she wanted to 
exude this kind of perfect family, perfect image of a perfect life. And Melvin was now part of that. So uh, by the summer of 1963, he'd been there a little over a year, uh, the, the staff at the Mossler estate started kind of whispering about the way that Candy and Melvin behaved around each other, especially when Jacques was not around. Um, the whispers centered around the fact that they didn't feel that the, the behavior was typical of an aunt and her blood relative nephew. And as it turned out, these whispers were really rooted in truth. Candy and Melvin had started having a passionate and ongoing love affair. They would exchange love letters with each other. They would rendezvous at various locations around Houston or at the mansion whenever Jacques was out of town, sometimes at the family's ranch or uh, beach house. And of course, the staff who's around all the time kind of caught on to this. But it took a while before Jacques caught on. Inevitably, he did catch on, though. He kind of caught wind of what was happening or what was being said, at least. He didn't necessarily believe it right away. But he wanted to either prove or disprove this rumor. So he decided to go right to the source and find Candy's diary. He knew that she kept a very prolific diary where she wrote everything. So he went searching for it, found it, and discovered that they were not only just having an affair, a casual affair, she was very much in love with her nephew, as she documented in her diary. Jacques was rightfully so disgusted by what he discovered, not only the betrayal of his wife cheating on him, but cheating on him with her nephew who was 20. 20 or 22 years her junior, so younger than her. You don't want to miss what happens next in today's murder story, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after a short message from our sponsors. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. His first instinct was to divorce her. Duh, of course. But he realized that if he did that, it would only make matters worse because divorcing her or suing, he even talked about suing Melvin for ruining his marriage, but either of those things would get huge media attention. They, you know, they these were public figures in Houston, so he knew that if he tried to sue Melvin, if he tried to divorce Candy, the publicity of this, not the divorce, but the scandal, the fact that his wife was sleeping with her nephew, that could ruin, I mean, his reputation, but also his businesses. Uh, he also realized that if he, if he divorced Candy, she would be entitled to half of everything. 
they did have a, a prenuptial agreement, um, but really all that it said was that if if Mel uh, Melvin, I'm sorry, if Jacques decided to divorce Candy, he had to give her half of everything. But if she divorced him, she would only get two hundred thousand dollars, which is nothing compared to half of thirty three million, which by the way in today's money would be 300 million. So Jacques was not prepared to make any big legal decisions at this point, uh, but he did confront Candy and they decided to separate. Candy would stay at the mansion in Houston and Jacques would go stay at his condo in Key Biscayne, Florida. Uh, She was given $5,700 a month to kind of maintain the house, help take care of the kids, Um, That is today, that would be $48,000, $48,000. That's a lot. I mean, that's almost what I make in a year. Um, So uh, they parted ways. Um, I don't want to say amicably, but, you know, it was was not a huge uh, blowout and it, it didn't really go public. But of course, in such small high society circles, it went a little public. People were talking. Rumors began to swirl. Um, According to kind of the gossip mill, Jacques had fired Melvin and hired security guards to escort him off the estate and forbid him to ever return and then gone to Florida. Um, Not sure if that's true or not. There were other rumors, but Candy worked really hard to try and quiet the rumor mill. She... She kind of had these pre-prepared stories ready for anyone who would ask her or was curious about why Jacques had supposedly kicked Melvin out. Um, one of her stories that she would often tell was that Melvin had spilled the beans about wanting to quit his job and start his own business. And Jacques didn't like that. And he was actually down in Florida just with busy with the grand opening of another bank. Um she told people, everything's fine between me and Jacques. He's working. That's it. Um, and we're, and she, would, she started to tell people, we're, we're going to go visit him soon with the kids. Me and the kids are going to visit him. Realistically, Melvin was not off of the property. And now that Jacques was out of the picture, Candy and Melvin kind of carried on. They tried to be more private about it at this point, but they carried on their affair, certainly. Uh, Candy, in addition to her $5,700, I believe she also had access to other money that was Jacques. She had the mansion and she had free reign to be with her, I was going to say boy toy, but I mean her nephew, her nephew. So life was pretty good for Candy. Um, But come June of 1964 and Candy's seemingly perfect yet incestuous new life was about to implode. During the final week of June 1964, Candy, accompanied by four of her six children, headed down to Florida to visit Jacques, and they stayed with him at his opulent oceanfront condo in Key Biscayne. Uh, Key Biscayne is a, a beach community located just across the causeway from Miami. The kids played on the beach and, and engaged in various beach activities, Candy was struggling, though. She 
made four visits to the hospital there because she was having persistent and, and kind of blinding migraine headaches. And in the early morning hours of June 30th, like 1 a.m. early, Candy got the kids up and asked them to come with her to go do some errands. I mean, that's very suspect to me. 1 a.m., you're going to do errands? What errands? Well, apparently she wanted to mail some letters at a, from, a, from a hotel. Um, she took the kids to go eat hamburgers at a diner. And she went back to the hospital again um, for treatment for her migraine. Around 4.30 a.m., the kids were exhausted. They all headed back to the condo. But when they entered the condo, they discovered Jock, covered in blood and wrapped in a blanket on the floor, motionless. Turned out he had been stabbed 39 times in and around his heart and lungs with a long-bladed knife and bludgeoned with a blunt object, which is what ultimately killed him. It was a gruesome scene that would be burned into candy in her children's minds forever. And considering the elite status and prominence of the Mossler family, police knew that they had to get on this investigation and figure out who did this, and they had to do it fast. And that's where I will leave you. <laughs> so I, feel, I always feel bad every time that I end an episode uh, for a part two, I feel guilty. But that is where I'm going to leave you. Um, and next week, we will revisit the Mosslers and Candy and Jacques and find out who is responsible for Jacques' untimely death. So thank you guys for listening. I hope everyone is having a wonderful Wednesday. Uh, thank you again for your patience with this episode coming out. And... I am excited to get back into our regular true crime rhythm and move away from all the heart, heartbreak, brokenhearted stuff. I'm tired of being sad, <laughs> but I appreciate everyone, uh, everyone's kind, kindness and encouragement and support. Uh, yeah. Okay, guys, we'll see you next week. Oh, um, you know, as always, please rate and review us on Apple, follow our socials, try our Patreon. Um, I am going to record the, the or post the video of this on Patreon probably. Um, yeah. Okay. Thanks, guys. Bye. Death by Southwest is hosted by Jenna Schneider and Margot Carmichael. Executive produced by Margot Carmichael. Produced by Jenna Schneider. Audio editing and sound design by Margot Carmichael music by Soundstripe. And a special thanks to Edward R. Murrow for letting us borrow his famous sign-off phrase, good night and good luck. <laughs>